Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 6th, 2018, and this is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's time for a listener, I'm sorry, expert counsel Q&A show. And I've got some good stuff for you today. We've got a pretty varied show today. I like these expert counsel shows because we are able to be so varied on them. Uh, we have choosing fence post material today from Darby Simpson. We have considerations with a greenhouse attached to your house and humidity and how that affects things with Ben Falk. We have what can and can't be grown on a dam wall with Jeff Lawton. We have what's up with the Venezuelan cryptocurrency, the Petro, with Ben Fitz of Crypto Gulch. Choosing and fitting handy material, handy, choosing and fitting handle material is a new knife maker with Patrick Rohrman. Making the jump to homeschooling when you're working with a high school student with Mike and Sue Laprise. And vehicle maintenance at quick stop oil place type locations like quick car and stuff like that with Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic. And uh, doing aquaponics when you have too much water volume to really do aquaponics with me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko. We'll get to all that in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year in history. This year, we're up to the year 418. Hadrian has taken over the empire as emperor. And we have four executions. That's good for a new emperor, right? Uh, early into Hadrian's reign, his Praetorian prefect, Antinius, claimed to have uncovered a conspiracy involving four senators, all of them ex-consuls, and included uh, the high-ranking general, Lucius Quintius. There was no public trial, and all four were hunted down and killed. It's not known exactly why these four were executed, but it's suspected that they supported Trajan's expansionist policies, and Hadrian wanted to get rid of them before they caused a ruckus over his abandonment of conquered Parthian territories. The Senate was livid and quickly determined that they were dealing with a psychopathic maniac just as bad as Domitian. Hadrian went out of his way to claim that the murders were carried out by overzealous subordinates. He had no knowledge of the plot. Hadrian assured them that their right to prosecute other senators would be respected after this, but he created a political bottomless pit. He would restore some goodwill with the Senate, but his relationship with them would be tenuous at best. He turned instead to the people and announced that he would cancel all outstanding debts on any state loan. Most people thought he was joking until the Praetorians burned all the loan records in the forum. With the people and the army behind him, he was relatively safe from the Senate. My take by David Verne. Terminius was the Roman god of borders, and the Romans believed that not even Jupiter, the king of gods, could move a border that Terminius had set. The Roman elite didn't believe in all continued expansion, but they definitely believed that Rome would never shrink from its border once it had been set. Here was Hadrian, a mere mortal, doing what even the gods couldn't do, move Rome's borders. The Empire was lucky that the Senate wasn't actually in charge or it might have fallen long before it did. A couple things here. Number one, you see populism being used as a system of checks and balances with, well, three parties. Okay, so you've got kind of similar to our government, the way it's supposed to work anyway, you know, executive, legislative, judicial. So here you have the Emperor, I guess you'd say is the executive with lawmaking capabilities as well. But being the target, so to say, that like if, if, if too many people turn on him, he's done. We've been this history thing long enough. 
So when he realizes, like, yeah, killing these four senators was probably not a good idea, but it needed to be done, and I need to make sure that I don't go next, he turns to the people and buys them with bread and circuses. He writes off all their debt, student loan forgiveness, much anyone. And, uh, you know, he had taken care of the army, had given them their, their bonuses when a new emperor takes over, exactly by the book of the way they're supposed to be. And so the soldiers, even if some of the commanders that wanted to go out and take more territory weren't so happy, the soldiers themselves were happy. So you got the army, you got the people, kind of neutered the Senate. So that's, that's, that's one thing I see here. The other is just this guy's, he recognizes that as an expansionist, if you expand too far, you destroy yourself. And he's willing to take all these risks because he's probably thinking, you know, now that I'm emperor, I'd like my life to be pretty good, and I'd like to not go down in history as the emperor that saw the fall of the empire. I'd like to be the guy that kind of kept us around for a bit longer. When I'm gone, there won't be anybody able to do that. And there's a lesson there. We, we as an empire, work differently than Rome. We don't occupy territory and take it. We, we, we go in and we instigate, and we control And we, we're able to be a much bigger empire than Rome ever could have been because of technology and communication, but also because of manipulation and the use of soft power. Instead of client kingdoms like Rome had, we have kingdoms that we treat as client kingdoms, even though they operate completely autonomously in the real world, yet we still have these little strings and things we could pull on the back end, you know, puppet leaders and stuff like that. And uh, so we've been able to expand way beyond what Rome ever could have hoped to but the rules still apply. And if you expand and stretch far enough sooner or later, collapse is inevitable. Everything's cyclical. History doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. With that, let me remind you real quick before we get into today's show that this is your last chance on this uh, sale that we have running on the Member Support Brigade. Um, it's a great deal, guys. 30 bucks a year for life. You get to lock that rate in. I don't do that type of a sale very often. Usually I'll do 30, 35 bucks for the first year, then it goes to the regular price. So right now... You can join 30 bucks a year. You lock that renewal rate in for life. You get all the discounts, all the benefits, everything everybody else does. You know, it's not a second tier membership or something like that. It's a full membership for 30 bucks. You can go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members to sign up. You can sign up online. Use the discount code TSP18. If you use cryptocurrency, when you send the cryptocurrency, just adjust accordingly. If you pay by U.S. mail with the, uh, the mail in form, just write the uh, code on the uh, on the form and adjust accordingly. If you pay by silver with the form, remember, we give you more time because we can't send you back a piece of your silver. doesn't fractionalize. One of the reasons cryptocurrency is a superior form of currency, if not a superior form of anonymous wealth. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into things today. We have, again, our first question is for Darby Simpson of the Grass-Fed Life podcast. And it's a question on choosing fence post material for your homestead or farm. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson with the Grass-Fed Life Podcast calling in once again to answer a question for the TSB Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Sean up off of Prince Edward Island in Canada. And he and his wife have got a farm, and they're already raising some chickens, pigs, turkeys, and ducks. And now they're looking at adding goats and cattle. And he's got about 30 acres of open ground that he's looking to start fencing in. And he wants to know what my recommendations are in terms of fence posts. Um, one of his main concerns, besides keeping the cattle and, and pigs and goats in, 
as keeping smaller wildlife like coyotes, coyotes and foxes out. Um, and one thing I want to mention right off the bat, Sean, is I don't know of a fencing system in existence outside of woven wire that's going to keep really small critters like that out. And even if you do put up woven wire, they're probably going to slip right through your gates. So keep that in mind. I think it's always best to protect our smallest animals like chickens and turkeys and ducks inside of either electrified portable poultry netting and or chicken tractors that are really secure. Um, and here we're talking about high tensile fence, not woven wire, because Sean's already started putting up some high tensile fence. Now, one thing Sean mentions in his email is that, uh, you know, he's thinking about getting certified organic. And Sean, I got to tell you, I don't know anything about the materials for certified organic fencing in the United States, let alone in Canada. I do know there are limitations in terms of what the posts can have in them and what they can be treated with. And what I'd really tell you to, to concentrate there on would be getting in touch with the uh, governing body that, you know, dictates what can and cannot be used and asking them uh, what you can use and, and what the sources are. Now, you mentioned in your email you're really looking at putting together a long-term system, and I applaud you for that. I'm trying to build everything on my farm. Uh, from an infrastructure standpoint so that by the time it needs very much work or a whole lot of maintenance, I'm going to be too old to care. It's going to be somebody else's problem, one of my boys, an element partner, what have you. Like, I'm going to be too old to care. Uh, what I use on my farm is fiberglass. We've got a source for used fiberglass posts. Um, they haven't been fenced posts in a former life. They were actually uh, oil rigging or water piping. Some of the material is used. Uh, some of it is new, uh, and it just didn't meet specifications. So uh, we've actually got a guy about two hours south of me in south central Indiana that buys this stuff by the truckload, by the semi-truckload. And it comes in mostly 30-foot lengths, and they'll cut this fiberglass into whatever length you want. And they've got anything you can imagine from 2.5 inches uh, OD uh, to 10 inches OD. Uh, they've even got some fiberglass rods that are solid that are like an inch to an inch and a half. I like fiberglass for a number of reasons. Number one, it's never going to rot like a wood post. These posts are going to outlast me. I put a 30-year wire, uh, you know, good quality, made in the USA, 12.5 gauge galvanized high tensile wire through these posts. I don't have to put any insulators on. Uh, the wire is not going to fall off, and I'm set. Does it take a little bit longer to build? Yes. Does it cost any more to build than a system with wood posts? No, not really. It's about the same. Um, and we fortunately have got a contractor that is set up to install this stuff very, very efficiently. We, we can build an eight wire system with line posts every 16 to 20 feet, um, for about a dollar 30 to a dollar 50 a linear foot. Uh, that includes all materials, all labor. So it's, it's pretty efficient to put up a system. Um, the other thing I like about fiberglass is that, you know, it, it's just, it's not going to deteriorate. Like I said, it's not going to rot. Um, and it's going to, it's going to last for a really long time. Um, and also 
here, uh, it's an approved material, even though it's used for NRCS contracts, uh, for EQIP contracts, where you get a cost-sharing grant to help offset some projects, and that de- really depends and varies by state uh, where you're located. And I don't know if Canada has any, you know, systems or grants similar to that in your agricultural body up there, but it might be worth looking into. Um, and, but these fiberglass posts, they, they qualify for those grants. Um, so that's, you know, that's really, that's the other thing I really genuinely like about them. And then again, it's about the same cost as wood. And they're a whole lot lighter. They're a whole lot easier to, to handle. They install faster uh, than wood posts. Like I said, it does take a little bit longer to put the system together because you got to drill a hole through the post, pull the wire through the post, but it's only once. Then you're done. So that's what I like. Now, there are some new fiberglass materials out there. Uh, like there's a product called Pasture Pro, and that is a wood resin plastic post. It's essentially um, ground up uh, sawdust, some glue, some coloring, some plastic, uh, and it's, you know, put into a, uh, a post that's anywhere from, you know, three feet long up to six or seven feet long and various diameters. Super light, very, very quick to install. Very effective at carrying uh, your wires. Uh, but they're super light. It's not super rigid. I think it's fine for cattle. I think it's probably fine for goats, although I don't have goats. Um, it, it carries the wire very well, but it's not real heavy duty. It's not robust. And I think they tell you, you're probably going to get a, you know, like a 20 to 25 year lifespan out of a product like that. Um, so, you know, a little bit more maintenance, I guess, than, than what I'm using. Um, but boy, it sure is easy to install. They are kind of pricey, though. Uh, you know, your other option would be to use just good old metal T-posts. Uh, again, for your line posts. And then I think for your corners, regardless, um, you know, that's where maybe you go to the, the time and expense. You want to build good corners, good H braces, good double H's. Uh, when you're turning, you know, changing directions, um, there, maybe you go with a good heavy duty long-term post. I don't know if you can coat that, you know, with like a linseed oil or something to help preserve it. Uh, can you put any kind of a coating on the portion that goes into the ground to keep it from rotting and breaking off? Again, questions to ask. Um, but personally, I really like fiberglass for all the reasons I've mentioned. I'm not opposed to using wood. But I've never done it. I've used fiberglass from day one. It just works for us uh, for a number of reasons. And, you know, that's that's my suggestion if you can use it if you want to be certified organic, if that's important to you. Uh, to me, that's not important because what we do here is so far beyond organic standards that it just doesn't interest me. Um, but anyway, those are my thoughts, Sean. If you got more questions, feel free to shoot me an email. You can email me directly, uh, darby at grassfedlife.co, and I'll be happy to chat with you further. Uh, for the rest of you, if you find this kind of stuff interesting, check out the podcast, Grassfed Life. It's on every Monday. We've got a lot of great topics we cover, all kinds of stuff like fencing that you just heard. Um, or things like marketing, or how to raise the animals, or cash flow, or branding. Uh, you name it, we cover it. 
every week. Uh, in the past month, we've had Joel Salton and Greg Judy on the podcast. So there's a lot of good information out there. I'd encourage you to check it out. You can also follow us on Facebook now. We've got a Grass-Fed Life Podcast Facebook page. Check that out. There's a lot of free tips and tricks out there. For those of you interested in going deeper, if you want to really go for it and make money, check out the Farm Business Essentials online course. You can do that at farmbusinessessentials.com. Guaranteed to be the only course you're going to need to take on farming to go farm in a regenerative manner for profit. It's a total A to Z comprehensive course. We cover everything, not just how to raise the animals, but also how to market the animals, how to price the cuts, branding, website creation, insurance, legal, you name it, we cover it. It's all there. Check it out, farmbusinessessentials.com. You've got until March 20th to take advantage of the early bird discount and save 200 bucks. But after March 20th, that's it. The price goes up for good, not coming back down. So check it out if you're interested. As always, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Everyone have a wonderful weekend and take care. Okay, good stuff and good advice from Darby. Next we have like a really interesting question, and it's one that a lot of people need to think about a lot. If you ever decide to you know, do that thing that seems to be the dream of every prepper and homesteader and permaculturist and build a greenhouse attached to your house. It's not a bad idea, but there are considerations that many people don't think about, and it can lead to a lot of problems. On that, Ben, tell us all about the problems that can happen with these attached greenhouses. Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question from Justice in Wisconsin. Um, great question, and I'm glad you're asking it, because uh, a lot of people don't, and they get into nightmare situations, as, you, as you've alluded to, putting greenhouses on attached to conditioned spaces to you know, buildings, homes, um, because essentially a greenhouse is a humidifier, a massive humidifier. And in a lot of climates in the world, especially cool or cold, temperate, humid climates, the last thing you want to do is pump a lot of humidity into your building or have even the exterior wall of a building up against a very humid, continuously humid space um, that's fluctuating rapidly in temperature. You're just driving moisture into walls, you're creating rot nightmares. And um, I'm glad, you, it sounds like you, you totally are aware of this and you have a good background in building. I think the way you're thinking about it is really good and generally um, I would agree um, with how you're approaching it. Um, I would have a completely um, isolated like interstitial space between the greenhouse and the condition space. I would treat it like a normal exterior of a building and also have air barrier protection between the outside and the inside, which isn't necessarily always the case um, for high-performance buildings today um, on the exterior side. But I would just make sure to have a vented space in between it to vent out moisture, you know, bring in air low, bring out air, infiltration low, exfiltration high in that space. You're going to lose two inches, four inches, whatever the space might be. Um, and it's going to be a bit, a bit of a detail to build and cost some extra money because of that. Um, but I don't think it would be much, and, and that would just totally safeguard you from driving moisture into that wall. Um, 
you know, you do, there are some downsides for sure beyond just the moisture danger. Um, you're taking up the south, now, now the south side of a conditioned building is a greenhouse, not just beautiful sunshine coming in. Um, you know, some sun will come through, but not as much as if it was just an open space. Plus the outdoor use of that space obviously is, is mostly killed with the greenhouse. It can be totally worth it. Um, as it might be in your situation, but just keep that in mind. We put a greenhouse on a barn, unconditioned, although the barn, the shop above the barn is mildly conditioned, but very gappy and leaky, and that's fine for the use, and I think it's safe because uh, for the greenhouse um, on the south side of it. But that was really nice south space for animals, loafing area for sheep. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't regret that I did it, but I really realize especially after doing it how valuable that space truly is I mean, you can't have enough south facing space in a northern climate you know it just is what it is it's, a, it's always a challenge you always want more south facing outdoor space for almost everything um so yeah just vent it out well and take all the moisture you know details you know into into consideration possible pressure treated or white oak or black locust details um drip details inside the building i've kind of gone out of my way to actually have flashing drip uh, moisture in particular areas because the glass walls or even plastic on a cold night and in different situations will rain inside so you'll have tons of water actually dripping off and you want to direct where that goes like i made a little cricket at the bottom of the glass on the door to send water like a in like a gutter essentially because all the water pours off the inside of the glass and maybe generates a half cup of water every day or two and that you know wants to go to specific places and and not to certain areas like at the base of the wall or up against framing. Even if it's pressure treated, you'll rot pressure treated out pretty fast if you're constantly kind of hitting it with moisture fluctuations. Um, so the inside still wants to dry a lot, and a, a good greenhouse will dry out hardcore in the summer and you know maybe half the year. Um, and that's important. Even you could do all the pressure treated in the world, and it's still going to rot if you don't really have a drying uh, force in there. So making sure you vent it really well is important, high and low. Um, good luck. Sounds like a good project. Good stuff from Ben Falk, as always. Uh, so now staying kind of in the permaculture, agricultural world for a bit before we go off into other things, I have a question for Jeff Lawton, and this is on what you can and can't grow on a damn wall. And I mean, you know, a dam that holds water back, not a damn wall like the damn wall on the side of your house. <laughs> anyway, Jeff, take it away. Hi, Jeff Lawton coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here about a um, a dam wall, a three-acre pond, or pond wall as you call it in America, um, pretty sizable uh, dam wall. Uh, and right now there are scrap trees that need to be cleared off uh, all professionals um, in that area um, have told the client that you can't plant anything on a damn wall. However, uh, they've read Sepholz that says you can plant shallow-rooted uh, plants to be just fine. Well, actually, um, you can plant anything that doesn't have a deep taproot. 
So the classic is clumping bamboo, although you could plant running bamboo. There are no bamboos in the world that go more than 18 inches deep in their roots. So um, they're all clumping roots. There's no taproot. And they actually have a silica leaf fall, which makes it weed-free and maintenance-free. So bamboo's a classic. In a colder climate, um, or in a lot of climates, you can plant willow. Willow just has a fibrous root. Uh, it's very controllable. If you cut it, it regrows. doesn't have a taproot. Look good on a damn wall, too. Otherwise, you can have palms, which don't have taproots, if you're warm enough for palms. Or any small woody shrub that doesn't get very big and doesn't have a renowned, long, deep taproot. So it's really any small woody shrubs. Uh, of course, herbaceous plants don't have big, strong taproots. They're not going to compromise the integrity of the wall. So it's just where you have a long, deep taproot ladder, classic tree. It'll put down a taproot, then send out laterals when it senses the water, and then potentially it'll, it'll compromise the integrity of the damn wall. If there's a big wind when it's misty and cold in a lot of water droplets, the weight of the tree could screw around and, and actually crack the wall which sometimes happens with pioneer trees growing on dam walls that actually go down fast with a deep taproot, send out a lateral. Misty, misty rain is worse than heavy rain. Misty rain, a lot of weight on the leaves. Big screwy wind comes through, cracks the wall. Of course, the other one is eventually the tree dies, the root system collapses, uh, decomposes and pipes through and the wall has to be rebuilt. So get those trees off the dam wall. Get anything off a dam wall that's got going to potentially have deep tap roots. I reckon if you can't take it down with a with a machete, it's already getting a bit big. If you've got to get the chainsaw out and you can't take it off with a hand hand tool, uh, big chopping knife or axe, then it's uh, already something you want to get down quick. Um, if you come across trees that are really, 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 really big and they have tap roots down at the dam walls, I'd leave them there. Um, you just got to face the consequences the day it dies, but you not, might not be around if the tree's going to live for a few hundred years. Once they're really big, you're better off leaving them alone unless you really want to risk rebuilding the wall when you cut the tree. The taproot's going to collapse, the lateral's going to decompose and compromise the wall. Otherwise, no problem. Good luck. Should be fine. Thanks. So my my only, like, really, maybe not, I'm not sure about this, is the willow thing. Um, willows are shallow-rooted, and they don't have a taproot, but they are remarkably aggressive with the roots. And I've seen willow roots go 100 feet away from a tree, and it makes me worry not so much about them getting into the wall, but into the dam and then sending up sh shoots off of their own roots and basically taking over the dam. So I think that willow probably can work, and there's different types of willow, and I think willow would be one of those things that we have to manage uh, if it's going to be on the dam wall. We just can't put it there and forget about it. I've seen willows just basically climb into lakes and take over half a lake. So, uh, And then, again, there are different kinds of willows. There are willows that are more of like a, a willow rush type plant. They don't really get into large trees, and that may be more what Jeff's talking about. My preference would be bamboo. I think he's spot on with bamboo and or river cane and the analogs to bamboo. They just will never get deep-rooted. They're basically like a very uh, tight-rooted grass. That's what bamboo is. It's a grass. Uh, the shoots are edible. The material is uh, useful uh, for so many different things. It's probably the best choice if it will work for you where you're at. Next up, I have a question on the cryptocurrency known as the Petro. 
put out by the Venezuelan government. Ben Fitz, take that away, man. Hi, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz from Crypto Gulch. And today I have an expert counsel question, which comes in from OpinionCon. And I guess OpinionCon is Joel. Uh, Joel says, what are your thoughts on the Venezuelan Petro, the government-backed pe- cryptocurrency? Is it the scam being touted or an honest attempt to solve their economy? Well, the Venezuelan Petro launched on February 20th uh, for a private sale. And then I believe on March 20th, it opens up to the public. And supposedly uh, what Venezuela did was they tied this cur- cryptocurrency into oil. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it's really not backed by oil. Like you can't exchange the Petro crypto for a barrel of oil. Um It's all basically faith in the Venezuelan government, and nobody has faith in the Venezuelan government. Um, Also, this currency could totally disappear if a new government took over in Venezuela. They could choose just to not back this currency. So let me take a step back here and give you the quick basis of it. You know, Venezuela has horrible inflation, as you probably know if you're a listener to this podcast. Um, and Venezuela themselves, the government has, you know, started expropriating private enterprises, you know. Um, so they're basically taking control of private companies in Venezuela. You know, they're doing everything they can to try and save themselves. They're desperately grasping at straws. And countries like the U.S. have um, sanctions against them. So as a U.S. citizen, if you were to go and try to buy the Petro cryptocurrency when it launches, you actually are in violation of U.S. law. You're in violation of the sanctions against um, Venezuela. So you're not supposed to do that. Um, but I wouldn't suggest doing it anyway. You know, um, it's way too risky to get involved with anything that Venezuela is doing. There is, when, when you're talking about a government-backed cryptocurrency, it's similar to a dollar where, you know, you're accepting that the government is actually going to, um, back this dollar and make it worth something. And you're expecting that Venezuela, a country with a very poor track record, is going to back the Petro. You know, and like I said, the instability that they have in their country that a new regime could take over and then just choose to wipe out everything that was done before. This is a government-controlled crypto. The government mined all of the crypto. So... The government starts off with 100 million coins and then goes and sells them to uh, private investors. And then on the 20th, they start to sell them to the public. So that's um, a, a pretty risky thing to get involved with, and I do not suggest doing it. If it was done right, maybe it could actually help the Venezuelan government. Um 
maybe it could help them turn around their financials. I just don't trust them. That's me personally. That's just my opinion. Um, I just don't trust their government. And so um, is it a scam? I don't know. It may be a legitimate attempt on their part to try and change things. But there are some things that are red flags, like they switched to from Ethereum to NEM. Um, they're on the NEM platform, NEM, New Economy Movement platform. They're not on Ethereum. And I read an article that talked about how the largest user of the NEM platform only has a $4 billion market cap where the largest on the Ethereum platform is $61 billion. And basically what they're saying is that because the NEM platform is a smaller platform, it would be a lot easier for a government to take control of the entire platform. If Venezuela deployed a lot of computers, they are a government after all, and they're seizing computers from the public, they're stopping Bitcoin miners and stuff like that. Um, they could take those computers, point them at the NEM platform, and take control of the NEM platform much easier than they could the Ethereum platform. So, again, there's lots of risks involved. And even if they don't do that, you know, two years from now, another government could take over. And, uh, and the way Venezuela is going, I think that that's a possibility. You know, coups and things like that are definite possibilities. Um, so I would avoid the Petro. And also, as I said earlier, if you're a U.S. citizen investing in the Petro, it may be considered illegal in violation of U.S. sanctions. And so I cannot recommend that to anybody. I wouldn't recommend it anyway, but I definitely don't recommend it since it's illegal as a U.S. citizen. This is Ben with Crypto Gulch, and thank you for another great cryptocurrency question. Turn it back over to you, Jack. Thanks. So let me add to this, right? So I have said that you know governments will come out with cryptocurrencies, and, and they have. And, and, and that was really to point out the fact that cryptocurrency works, it's valid, it's useful, and governments will realize that it has benefits and they'll 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 go emulate after saying it doesn't work it's crap no you know so and, and several governments have come out with versions of cryptocurrency now um, that does not mean go out and buy it when they do um, there may be at some point one that seems to make sense as an investor but that's not this one at all and I I really want to kind of point out the the obvious this is counter to the the entire point of cryptocurrency. Um, the entire point of cryptocurrency is decentralization and the lack of control by any single entity and a currency that derives its value from its use in whatever economy it gets used in by whoever chooses to use it. And, and that's what cryptocurrency is about. So when a government goes into this business, it may be validation that the technology works, but it does not mean that we should all go, yay, let's go get involved. And as far as... Uh, the illegal nature of this, yes, it probably is. No, it's probably not worth doing, but you, you could do it. There, and it would be almost impossible to prove that you, uh, that you were the one that did it. But you're, you know, and it's not like patriotism or something. You're supporting a government that makes the worst of our government look like the best day at Disneyland. These guys are scum, right? So it's, it's not like, oh, they're an enemy of the United States. They're an enemy to people. 
Like, there would be no good reason I could come up with to support the Venezuelan government. You're supporting socialist communists who are failing if you buy this currency. Seriously, that's what you're doing. So it, it, And socialist communism is the antithesis of what a cryptocurrency is supposed to be all about as well. Cryptocurrency is the most anarchist thing that, that's happened to our, our society since the Internet. And, and I'd say it's a bigger anarchist thing than the Internet. Yeah, the Internet say, but it came from government and CERN and Al Gore. And, yeah, it, and they didn't know what they were doing or I promise you they would have done it. They would have. They get a lot of benefit out of it today for sure. But in the end, this is the most anarcho system of communication that's ever existed, and it enables things that were just not possible 30 years ago in any way, shape, or form for the average person. And that is anarchism. The anarchism is the ultimate freedom of the individual. That's that is what anarchism is. So when you start having, you know, to me, when governments start doing a cryptocurrency. It's like when our government thought they were going to take over email and they were going to have a government email service and you would pay for it and it would actually take longer for your mail to get to you and I thought people would use it. Yeah, no, no, no. Next up we have a, uh, a question on fitting knife handles to knives for new knife makers with Patrick Rorman of MT Knives. Hey guys, this is Patrick Rorman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Joel. I'm in the process of building my first knife from scratch, having done some forging from an old file I had on hand. I'm looking for ideas on handle material. What are your preferred choices of scale material, and what would you recommend for a first-time builder? Thanks, Joel. Thanks for the question, Joel. As far as uh, handle material, there's... Lots of things to choose from, whether you want a natural material or if you want a synthetic material. A lot of it's going to come down to personal preference and what is the purpose of the knife. If this is going to be a, a knife that you plan on using heavily and you're going to be putting a lot of stress on the handle, maybe your hands are going to be getting bloody or sweaty, then... These are all things to take in consideration when selecting a handle material. I myself prefer wood, a lot of natural materials. For the most part, I stay away from a lot of the synthetic that almost feel like plastic type materials. One of my favorite materials is uh, desert ironwood. It's a really dense wood. It's going to be strong. It's going to hold up for many years to come, and it's also a very beautiful wood when it's sanded, polished, and cleaned up nice. Something like G10 or micarta is going to be a synthetic material. It's going to last a long time and be strong as well if you're looking for something in the synthetic realm. A lot of people use bone antlers. I don't mind it mind it when it's done well, but there's a lot of knives out there that just aren't done well. And bone or antler, a lot of them to me I just feel like isn't something that I personally like to use on things that I make. Save it maybe like some really nice stag or something like that I might put on a knife. 
Camel bone is, uh, you can get it. It's, it's okay. It, you can get it dyed different colors. There's lots of different options to choose from and you can get, get your handle material someplace like knife kits. Uh, knife kits has excellent customer service. There are some things you got to keep in mind. Certain people are allergic to different woods and the dust from different woods, particularly some of the rosewood family. And a lot of your wood dust is toxic. Uh, I believe like the ironwood, you don't want to breathe in a lot of that dust. So you want to make sure and use a good respirator, something like G10 or carbon fiber. Same thing. You don't want to be breathing that dust in. You want to work it in a well-ventilated area and possibly, you know, it's best to have some sort of dust control, dust collection system in place. Lungs are something that you don't want to mess around with and get a nasty lung infection or just uh, that stuff builds up in your lungs over time. Just doing it as a hobby is uh, one thing, but especially if you're going to do a lot of it, make sure that you protect your lungs. So um, Knife Kits has a huge selection of handle material. One other thing, when you're starting out, I really suggest to get scales, knife scales. Don't get a block of wood. You can if you want, but splitting the wood, keeping it even, and then sanding your scales flat, that's a lot of work, especially if you don't have the proper tools to do it. You can buy pre-made scales that are already split in half, sand it down smooth and ready to drill some holes and put on your knife. The closer you can get the scales to the thickness that you're looking for, the better. A lot of people tend to put on really bulky handles on some of their first knives. I like a thinner handle and not something that's bulky or cumbersome. So, uh, I'm looking here on knife kits and he's got some desert ironwood scales. They're uh, five by 1.5 by quarter inch. I, uh, that would be an all right size. A quarter inch is rather thick. I prefer something like three sixteenths. That sixteenth of an inch off of either side of the scales makes a pretty big difference. But for your first knife, no matter what you do, you're going to come back to it later on after making a few more and see things that you'll wish you have done differently. And you can always go back and uh, touch it up, change some things. I know some of my first knives, I went back several times and cleaned them up and made them look a little bit better. And since this is uh, your first knife, I might also mention some things that hopefully will be beneficial to you. First of all, a quarter inch pin will not fit into a quarter inch hole. Uh, what I mean by that is if you take a quarter inch drill bit and drill a hole, a quarter inch pin will not fit in it without first reaming that hole with a quarter inch reamer. You can also use the letter F bit. That bit is a uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember. It's it's slightly larger than a quarter inch, 
and it will help you uh, when you pin together your knife. Same thing, eighth inch. Um, an eighth inch pin will not fit into an eighth inch hole without reaming it to an eighth inch. So those are some tips that I wish I would have known when I started out many times with pin stock. It's not consistent anyway. Anyway, so you might find a eighth inch pin that slides in freely and you might find other eighth inch pins that are pretty tight. And I've spent plenty of time trying to sand down pins or um, trying to make that pin fit. So it really helps to have uh, the right size pin, right size hole, and everything will go a lot smoother. You mentioned this is a forged knife. You may or may not have problems with uh, getting your tail or getting your scales to fit tightly against the tang of the knife. You may find taking the tang of the knife to a disc grinder or to a flat platen will help smooth out the uh, handle and give you a better fit and finish on uh, the scales themselves. The problem with that is, is if you scratch your forge finish past where the handle's going to go on, hopefully this will get you a good start on your first knife. When you finish up, be sure to send me a picture if you like. I'd like to see how it turns out. So thank you very much for your question. I need uh, some more questions. So if you guys have any questions regarding knife making or knives, sharpening, anything to do with uh, that sort of stuff, I'll do my best to help you out however I can. Once again, this has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. I hope you have a great weekend and stay sharp. You know, great answer from Patrick. Moving on to uh, Mike and Sue LaPrise this week. More and more parents are making the decision to t take their children out of school and, and to go the homeschool route. And when you see the results in our school systems and what's going on in our school systems and some of the bullying and some of the fighting, the violence, the, the suicide rate among uh, children, you know, let's say age uh, 12 to 24 from, from you know, middle school up to college years being just unbelievable. Um, and, and the continued indoctrination by the state, the way these kids are being used as political pawns now, you can see why. And the fundamental reality, though, is there's a difference in taking a kid who's five years old and not putting him in kindergarten and, and beginning a homeschool regiment, or taking a kid that's maybe gone through, you know, first, second grade-ish, third grade-ish with, with homeschool or with regular schooling and then bringing them home. Imagine taking a 14, 15, or 16-year-old kid out of high school to finish up their schooling at home. It's a different set of challenges, isn't it? And that's the subject of the call that we have for Mike and Sue LaPrise today. This is Michael and Sue LaPrise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. This week, our question is from Josh. And actually, we spoke with Josh and his wife, Angie. Actually, we went to a permaculture workshop that they were doing in Magnolia, Texas. That's awesome. And that they hosted. Uh, Josh got his PDC from Jeff Lawton. And there was another guest there, Nathan Huntley from Oklahoma. And Nathan gave us some great tree ideas for our property. Uh, so we love connecting with the TSP community, and it was a great time. 
Um, we learned a lot. We learned a lot. Yeah. Anyway, Josh's question that he initially wrote in was, how do you address a high school student who you're, who's a junior that you're bringing home and homeschooling for the first time? What are some of the things that you have to look at and what do you need to think about? So there's a couple reasons why people pull their kids out in high school. And the main one is bullying. You'll, that's the main one you'll hear when people are like, oh, I pulled my kid out and I don't know what to do. And then the kids are either struggling because they're behind or they're struggling because they're bored because they're smarter than the classroom can handle. And then there's the parents walking to freedom reason for yep. bringing your kids out. And there's the issue of um, parents having an issue with the school authorities. Yeah, like not listening and, and being attentive to the parents. So you've got these two things. It's like, am I going to plan ahead and pull my kid out of high school because they want to? Or am I at the last minute, this is not working, my kid needs out for whatever reason. And I pulled him out of school yesterday. Yeah. So those are two different things. So if you're planning ahead, the first thing you have to think about is there's a sacrifice for one of the parents to make or a grandparent. I mean, it can be just somebody has to make the sacrifice and the commitment. And then you have to accept the adjustment period. And you've got to help. They're not going to. Very few high school kids would come out and go, I've got this plan and all I need is $200 and I'm on my own and I can handle it. So you really have to gather the information with them and help launch them and get them to that self-accountability stage. Yes, because it could be a situation where it's going to be really stressful for your child because as they're going through that transition, and we know some people who have, there's a point where the child realizes, oh, I'm now responsible for me. Yeah. I can't blame the teacher. I can't blame the noise in the classroom. I can't blame all these things. It's on me. And kind of as a parent, you feel that way too. Like yeah. it's it's on me. I've got to get this together. Absolutely. So one of the goals um, that you can help your kids set is certifications. There's all kinds of entrepreneur things that they can do. There's a lot of permaculture entrepreneur things that they can do. Um, IT a lot of companies are running their own IT. I know Rackspace here has their own online IT classes. Um, an auto shop, they can develop a hobby that tr- turns into something like beekeeping or something like that, raising koi. I mean, there's tons of things, tons of ways to make money that don't require that college degree. But in, in addition to going through the challenges or, or the, uh, the curricula of getting through, say, your junior and senior year of, of high school. Right. Yeah, they'll, they'll have a lot more to show for it if they're not going to college, if they stop high school and do something interesting with their life. Like the kid that raises the animals in Oregon that Jack has on, yak guy, the yak, yak from, kid, yeah, yeah, that's super cool. So there's a lot of fun stuff to do out there. So well, the young guy that was interviewing all the World War II vets to get yeah, their stories down. Yeah. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm uh, subscribed to him on uh, on YouTube. So there's so. a lot of so the thing that the government school can't wrap their arms around is the new adventures that are out there waiting for kids to catch on to because they got to take forever to get it into their system and their structure. So if your kid knows what they want to do and they want to come out of high school and do that, then it's it's well worth helping them do that. So some of the challenges that you're going to face are... Well, I would say the first one is going to be for your child to struggle with a lack of structure. Yeah, there's no bell ringing. There's no bell ringing. Um, there's nobody telling them what they've got to do next. 
uh, yeah, the bell doesn't ring, and and that, that there's a transition there. It, it, it just is. I'm used to having a structured life, especially if they've been in school since kindergarten, and now they're a junior in high school, and you're pulling them out. There's going to be a transition there, and that's one of the struggles that they could have, the challenge of the lack of structure. Yeah, so it's just like designing your garden and permaculture. It's like you want to develop a system and a pattern of the day with them, and that's part of the process. So you also have to be really intentional about finding meaningful friendship. Yes, yeah, so it depends on what your child was like, what, what their school environment was like. Were they really uh, gregarious and outgoing? Did they have lots of friends at school? Are those friends nearby so they can maintain those relationships? Or if you're living out in the country and your kids aren't going to school, how do you... Uh, how do they maintain relationships yeah. or develop new relationships? Yeah, and so you can do things as simple as gathering at Starbucks. Lots of libraries have teen things for homeschoolers and lots of co-ops and different things like that. Maybe you go to church. There's all kinds of ways to get teens together um, that, are, that are fun. And because, you know, our kids, when they're doing co-op, they it was never really about whatever subject it was. It was really about getting together with their friends. <laughs> Yeah, which brings us to the next one, um, accountability and self-motivation. So for homeschoolers who start their children off when they're three or four or five years old, um, over time they develop that. You're, you're working through that process in a gradual um, timeline so that they learn to become um, self-accountable yeah. for the work that they do. So like you turn your math in every day when you're little. You turn it in once a week when you get bigger. And you're on your own when you're in high school for our house. Yes, so you've made that transition. But if you're coming out of the government school system, um, that has to be developed. So those are some of the challenges that you'll have to overcome. And the self-motivation of getting up saying, I've got to get my work done. So for us, where our high school kids were more involved in doing that on their own, um, if your child was just starting as a junior in high school, you might need to be more involved with their daily routine. Yeah, Just because on. of... The, that transition of this is the world that I'm used to and now I'm in a different world and getting adjusted to that. Yeah, and it, if you're already homeschooling your high schooler, teaching them that they are not turning their work into you, they are doing their work for their own sake. If they cheat on a test or whatever, they're cheating themselves, not you as the parent. That's a, something you have to teach them. Yeah, and then one of the other things that you'll have to deal with is what happens if there's a, a particular subject that they really hate. Well, we all have one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you have a subject you really hate, if it's a foreign language, well, that's great because they don't have to take a foreign language, really. Right. You don't. You can get into college without two years of a foreign language. You just can't graduate from a public high school without two years of a foreign language. And what happens if they hate math? Well, then you just slow down. You just slow it down. Getting through pre-algebra really, really well if your kid's not going to college and then doing a consumer math class, there's a lot of free ones online. You know, learning how to really live life with money um, is far more helpful to most people than Algebra 2. Okay, sure. and what about if the, the, the subject they really hate is English? Then um, they still have to do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. You still have to write. You have to read and you have to write because... Those are valuable tools, but you can adjust that. So your kids don't like reading fiction, then you don't have to read fiction. You know, a lot of little boys especially, they want to look through a book with lots of pictures and a few words and but engineering. They, but if they're in high school, yeah. that's not going to be the case. Then no, but then you can have them read websites and, you know, there's a lot of other interesting things to read. It doesn't have to be 
the romance poetry yeah. or whatever. Game of yeah. Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't recommend that. Okay, either. let's talk about curriculum then. So, uh, if if your child is just at the high school level and they're just going to get through high school, one of the things is there's a lot of free online stuff, and we've mentioned that stuff every before. subject. Every subject. Yeah. yeah. And you can have you can look with your kid, and um, if you're going to do a co-op, then you buy whatever curriculum they say you have to buy. But if you're strictly going online and finding stuff, I recommend you do that with your kid, and it. It's not that hard. Yeah, and if and if your only child is a high school child, so it's not like a group of children coming home. Um, there, it, and there are some places where it's available where they have high school only co-ops. Yeah. So you're dealing with just high school kids. Yeah, they're a little bit expensive, yeah. but they do. So another option that a lot of homeschool families um, that are already homeschooling that you might know that are like. You tell them, I need to pull my kid out of school because of these reasons. And they say, hey, just, you know, bring them here. My kids would love to hang out with them. And then, you know, they have all the curriculum and they have all the books and stuff like that. So it could be a really easy kind of win-win because as a homeschool parent, when you get another kid to come in that's your kid's age to do anything, it's really fun for the homeschool kid. Yeah, so you're bringing a child into your house who's your children's age and you're just adding them to your homeschooling. Yeah. And so it's not like... The couple whose child is now out of school necessarily has to homeschool, although they have to get their child to the their, person's house. The, yeah, the person's house. But there are people that we know that do that, take other kids in and homeschool them. Yes. So the other one is if your kid has a passion, help them to find a job. You can go to the vet. You can go to the. Well, you can go to like near us is Water Garden Gems, which is. Uh, all things for aquaponic systems. Yes. It's a big store. We had a kid that worked there. If they like cooking, you know, there's even at 15, there's like party ranches out here. They hire at 15. Our kids all work there. And um, whatever their passion is, it might be a volunteer position. It might be helping somebody with woodworking. You know, like little old retired guys have all kinds of jobs that they would like some help. So if you're not sure about homeschooling and you think, I, I want to try this without actually trying it, I have an idea. So we follow Matt Powers online. He does the permaculture student um, online, and he has his high school book, per- The Permaculture Student 2, is now free online. And you can print it and you can read it and you can walk through this whole permaculture course, which we love, and our garden's doing great. And my kids just really, really enjoy it. And so you can do this with your kids and get out in your yard. So you're kind of learning to work together. You're also starting to get your yard together, whatever size yard you have, even if it's a patio, and learning about the whole process of permaculture. And I think you'll be surprised how much fun you have being together and working together and learning together. And it's really not that hard. And it teaches you how to homeschool. And it teaches you how to homeschool. That's all homeschooling is. It's like learning with your kids. Okay. So this has been Michael and Sula Prees reminding you that, hey, if you're in our area, yes. stop on by on a Tuesday night when we have our TSP uh, event here at our house. We'd love to have you stop on by. Again, this is Michael and Sula Prees with HaloBySue.com. Back to you, Jack.
Good stuff from Mike and Sue LaPreeze, but what else could we expect from them? Guys, I could use some more questions for them. They are officially out of questions. As Patrick Rorman said, he is out of questions. I could actually use questions for any and all expert council members about this time. Remember, if you want to ask a question to expert council, the way to do that is not by phone. It is by email. Email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC expert. In the subject line, ask your question up front and tell me who the question's for. Hit the return key a couple times and give me the details. That will make it all go better. Trust me, I've been doing this for almost a decade now. I know what works. I'm trying to help you help me help you. Anyway, we have one more question from a council member before mine today. This question is for the humble mechanic, Charles Sandville. It's about getting maintenance done at those like quick car type places, quick oil lube places, beyond the oil change. When they say, well, you want us to do this, you want us to do that, do you want us to add this to your bill and add that to your bill, even though we did it last time and it done, yeah, like that. Charles, take it away, bro. What's up, everybody? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions, and this one comes from Jay. He asks, what should I avoid and what services are okay to utilize at a quick-change oil shop? The details are, when getting his oil changed at a local express shop, he's often asked whether he'd like to have other fluids changed like radiator coolant, transfer case oil, and so on. Jay has done most of what they've recommended, but is wondering if some things are better done at the dealership or is two to three times the price usually not worth it. Jay, good question. Now, so much of this is really going to depend, <laughs> right? The famous it depends answer, but it's going to depend on a variety of factors. First of all, I want to touch on something that Jay mentioned, and that's servicing your car at a quick change place versus at the dealership. And we have this idea that always, 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 it's going to be cheaper at one of these quick change places. And guys, that is simply not always the case. In fact, the dealership I worked for before I left, quarterly we would price shop our major services, oil changes, tire mount and balance, that kind of stuff. And every single time, we were either the cheapest or within a dollar or two of the cheapest place to get your car serviced. In fact, those quick quickie places, right, the quickie change places, were often 20 to $30 more expensive for the correct oil change. Understand that they advertise that $30 oil change, which is great on like a 96 Corolla. But when you're servicing a higher line vehicle that requires a more expensive filter and synthetic oil and more than four quarts, you have to really do an apples to apples comparison. So please don't just sit back and say place A is more expensive than place B. Guys, call a couple places. If you don't have a place that you take your car to every time, Call them and ask them how much it is because this stuff does change pretty frequently. The other thing about oil changes, and it kind of leads into Jay's question, is about doing these extra stuff. Oil changes are what are called loss leaders, meaning when you go to a dealership or you go to a shop and get your oil change, they're probably not making any money at all, period. And if they are, it ain't much. In fact, when I was a shop foreman at my dealership, I didn't do oil changes. Well, Thankfully, I didn't do oil changes because truth be told, I don't love doing them, but I really couldn't do oil changes unless I had to because it actually cost the dealership money by the time they paid me, by the time they paid the parts counter guy, by the time they paid the advisor and the service manager and all the other people involved. By the time everybody got paid, they lost money on that service. So the way it works is you have this really low profit thing like an oil change to get a customer in the door and then you look their vehicle over and try and find other things wrong with it. Now, I have zero problem with this. 
zero problem with this because very few people do the work and do the checks that they should be doing and say look at their serpentine belt or their inboard brake pads or their tie rods and ball joints. Most people don't do that. So when you take it to a shop to get service, you are bringing it there for someone that should be an expert to look over your car for you. And that's where shops really make their money is on the upsell. And again, I have zero problem with that as long as what they are selling are legitimate repairs that the car actually does need. Does it happen where places upsell things that they shouldn't? Of course it does. And I don't think anybody is going to be okay with that. But I have no problem with shops looking over your car. It's one of the reasons that you bring it there. When we talk about specifically the fluid exchanges, the coolant, the diff, the power steering, all that, that's real money makers. They're charging $100, you know, $30 worth of fluid and $20 worth of labor, and that extra 50 is shop profit. So that is a big, big moneymaker for shops. And the quick change places are typically the ones that really push those way more than the dealership. Dealerships tend to, the good ones anyway, have a kind of fluid relationship with what the service manual or the owner's book says. For example, VW never had a coolant change service, but if we inspected the coolant and found that it was nasty, dirty, or started to break down, we would recommend a, a repair. The other thing about price that Jay mentions is it's two to three times more expensive. Instead of just assuming the dealership is more expensive, we have to look at why. Why would it be three times more to bring it to the dealership versus the quickie change place? We have to look at labor. Odds are they're probably paying someone a little bit more money at a dealership than they are at a quickie change place. The dealership's going to have more overhead. They buy more tools and on and on and on with that. The big difference I typically see when we're making that comparison in price is we're not making an apples to apples comparison. We're comparing a universal fluid, say a universal transmission fluid, to a fluid specifically designed for that application. I have seen many transmissions ruined because a universal fluid was put in it that applied to every car out there, but it didn't have the right detergent packages or it didn't have the right additive package that the transmission really did need. And that's why you can go into the auto parts store and you can walk down that aisle of engine oil and go, that one's a dollar for a liter. And this one's $9.99 a liter. There are going to be some differences, even though maybe the, the bulk mixture is the same, there's going to be some differences that your vehicle may require. The point I really want to hit home with Jay's question, guys, is that please don't just sit back and assume that place A is more expensive than B or they're charging me three times more for the exact same thing. You have to get the actual information. Are they using the right fluid? Is it a universal coolant or that really expensive coolant that German cars take? I won't have the answer to that. That's something you're going to have to find out on your own. So please do your research, do your homework, consult the dealership and ask them how much this stuff is and use that price they give you as a tool to figure out whether you take it there, whether you do it yourself, which I think is a great idea, or whether you take it to one of those quick places or whether you buy the fluid yourself and get it a little bit cheaper and bring it to the shop or bring it to the independent shop that specializes in your brand or bring it to the dealer or of course do it yourself. There's more options than just quick change place and dealership. To give you a little bit of perspective, we charged about $80 for an oil change. $16 of that was labor. So if you brought your own oil and filter in to that dealership and asked them to change the oil, it would cost you probably $18 by the time you add 
sales tax and all that stuff too. So I hope that helps, Jay. Please, guys, please, please, please. Apples to apples comparisons when we're looking at this stuff. Labor, fluid, everything. So, Jay, great question. Jack, TSP, I hope you guys have an awesome, awesome, awesome weekend. We are like ankle deep in pollen here in North Carolina, so I'm surprised I can even talk through this question. But I hope you guys have a great weekend, and I will talk to you again next time. Good advice, and I have uh, one little uh, thing to add to that. You know how Charles said they aren't making any money on an oil change, and he listed all the reasons, the parts guy and the overhead and everything. The reality is spread out over as many people as these folks do business with. That overhead isn't really that big of a cost. Their real cost is in the tech that does the work and uh, the materials for the oil change. This is why I don't change my own oil. Because I can get my oil changed, and assuming I use the same oil that the, the shop does, I can't save but maybe 2 to $4, if that. Sometimes it will cost me more to change my own oil because I'm going to go buy the oil from the same people that are going to, you see what I'm saying, like they mark the oil up, they mark the filter up. So when I look at it this way, if I were to change my own oil, since I don't have a ramp, you know, I either put it up on drive-up ramps or on a on a lift or something like that with some jack stands or something. Crawl underneath there, pull it out. Then I got to deal with the oil that comes out of there because I'm not you know turning oil into diesel fuel or anything like that. So I got to do something with that. You know, it'll probably take me an hour. I, I mean, I can do it in less time, but it's probably going to take me at minimum an hour. And if I save four dollars an hour by changing my own oil, then I just worked for four dollars an hour. Jack Spierko does not work doing anything for $4 an hour unless he really loves what he's doing. If you wanted to pay me $4 an hour to go fishing, I might get 40 bucks a day from you on a weekend. But other than that, I do not do work for $4 an hour. And it's one of those things that I just, you know, I think it's good if you have a young kid He's learning to drive and whatever. If you have the equipment, you teach them how to change the oil so they know how it works and they can do it. But then you teach them, hey, we don't make money doing this. This is how we make money in our world. This is how we're productive in our world. And, you know, that maybe he might figure he wants to be a Charles, right? He wants to go be a mechanic. Or he might figure out, like, I don't really want to do this. And I'm a, I'm a mechanic by trade from the military. And I don't want to do it. It's, 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 it's not fun. Changing oil sucks. Out of all things you do in a car, it's it's not hard, but it's just a pain in the ass, and it's just there's nothing challenging about it, and there's no troubleshooting involved. And when there is troubleshooting in an oil change, that means something bad happened, like something stripped or broke, and you're putting a drill and tap into an oil plug or something. That's never good. So I don't change my own oil, and I haven't since about 1989. The last time I changed oil in a vehicle... Uh, it was a mil- no, actually, I did work very, very part time uh, for a couple weeks until I found something else to do for Firestone when I first came to Texas. So I changed a bunch of oil there, you know, making a little bit over minimum wage. And that tells you the kind of people they have to do oil changes because it's not hard. It's just not. Anyway, uh, my question today it revolves around aquaponics. And this question is Can I use a small existing pond for an aquaponics system? Details, the area of my property where I'm planning on setting up my aquaponic system for the first time this year has a small landscape pond. There's elevated flat rocks above the pond where I'm planning to put one ebb and flow bed and one wicking bed. The pond has an established frog population already, and the area gets full sunshine eight-plus hours a day in the growing season. The pond is roughly a ten-foot circle, one to three-foot deep, depending on how far you are in the center. I'm planning on uh, catching local bluegill to stock the pond for the year. 
I thank you for all the work you do and your amazing podcast. Inspired me to move my family to a family farm where we are currently working on getting up and running. Last year we had our first garden, and this year we added chickens and are planning to add this aquaponic system. Sincerely, Bryce in Ohio. Well, Bryce, um, my my answer to you, and I already gave you the short version by email because it sounded time sensitive a little bit, some of the other stuff there, uh, was yes and no. And so here's a couple things that I want to address with this. One, with it only being three foot deep in Ohio, you could have a situation where it freezes through. I didn't say this to you in email because it's a little bit complicated. So you're going to want to take some sort of uh, freeze mitigation, whether that's stock tank heaters or something like that, and have that planned into your winter. And you're going to want to have a plan that whatever you do as far as aquaponics, that, that system, that, that, that recirculating component of the system that can freeze up and break and cause you misery can be shut down and drained. So, you know, when you think of your aquaponics beds, you think, well, they drain easily anyway, but you may want to think about being able to drain them completely or at least draining them early and let nature take its course from there and draining the pipes if there are any pipes that return back to your pond. Uh, if these are, you know, the way you're setting them up, they basically just drop right back into the pond, which, by the way, is foolproof. And if something breaks, it's not a big deal then. Uh, because it, if it leaks into the pond, it's not really a leak, that type of thing, then it, it's less of a concern. But if you, if you expand beyond these two beds uh, and go in any kind of like a rack with multiple beds in them or something like that, then you're going to want to make sure that that's all drainable. We've learned that over the years, and we've gotten pretty good at it here, and it saves a lot of misery and a lot of angst and a lot of unhappiness. And I live in a place that freezes a hell of a lot less than where you do, so it will be more, not less important where you are. Uh, next, it probably since you have that pond put there by somebody else uh, of that size, I would imagine it probably has power to it, so your pump is going to be able to, you know, if you just probably upgrade the pump the original people were using if it's necessary and what have you, and that's good and all. The yes and no stems from this. Ten foot uh, round, which is probably bigger because ponds generally look smaller than they are when you actually measure them. Um, ten foot, one to three foot of depth. I used an average depth of two feet, and that means that you have about 1,100 gallons of water. Doing ebb and flow aquaponics or deep water aquaponics with that volume of water requires a lot of fish, a lot, a lot, a lot of fish. So many so that it would be almost impossible to balance with, you know, two beds. Uh, two beds would be fine for a filtration system. You're probably going to want to add more over time, and you can. Uh, but what you're going to have to do is not overstock the system. You're going to have to stock the system to a point with flowing water, moving water, aeration, all that, that the system's happy and it's got good biology and nice clean water and every, everybody's good to go and we're feeding our fish and they're making poop and our beds are filtering, but they're not going to be filtering enough nutrient for most plants to do well in the ebb and flow system because there's not enough nutrient there. And if we brought up the nutrient to where it was sufficient, then the beds aren't sufficient to filter it out, and then we have a cascading crash and everything dies in the pond. So you see, like, that's where you are. And people say, well, it should be possible to bring it up just enough for that one bed to do the job. Well, it, 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 it is, but it's kind of like shooting a pinhead with a .30-06 at 100 yards while it's moving. It can be done, but it's very difficult. And then the thing is you have to keep making the shot. So imagine now you're on a thing and you're spinning in a circle a little about the same speed the pinhead is, and it's just ahead of you a little bit, and you have to keep taking shots with a .30-06 semi-automatic and hit it because every day you got to make that shot again. 
And if it swings up or down, everything goes into disarray. And it's probably going to swing to the side of too much nutrient, and now we have a problem. So what's the solution? In your ebb and flow beds, grow things that will do well in those as biological filters and beneficial products that do not require large amounts of nutrient. What would be the number one plant that, that, that makes sense to do that with? Mint. The one that goes, oh, no, don't grow in your ebb and flow beds. It'll take over. Well, in this case, that's great. It's an incredible filtration system. It will do a lot of good for your biology. It is a good herb to eat, and it's a good herb to make tea with. That would be one of my primary suggestions for your ebb and flow bed. The other suggestion would be things like um, just reeds for ornamental purposes and, and what they do to help the health of the system, or something like an edible reed, water chestnut. Water chestnut does really well in ebb and flow beds, and it doesn't need a lot of nutrient. It does really good at getting the nutrient it needs, even when other plants won't. As to vegetables that do okay in ebb and flow beds that do not have huge amounts of nutrient, tomato of all like the popular vegetables seems like the one that can get by. Um, generally speaking, though, then you get the tomatoes that are more like a hydroponics tomato. So I recommend if you're going to try tomatoes in that bed, and go ahead, because it's a plant. It's one plant, two plants, whatever. Let it, see what happens. Um, some sort of cherry tomato. Because in aquaponics systems that are not soil-based, um, you get a lot of hydration into tomatoes. You get a lot more cracking and stuff like that in your tomatoes. And if you if you so. There's better ways to do large tomatoes that I'll, I'll get to in a second. So tomato, cucumbers probably not going to be real happy, but you could try it. The key is if you're going to do this and you want to grow things beyond mint and you know reeds or, or water chestnut, then you're going to have to be really religious about spraying with a foliar feed. If you'll get a garret juice or the liquid Dr. Earth and add in like you know a, a quarter teaspoon uh, to that of like the liquid kelp. And maybe some fish emulsion, maybe a little bit of comfort tea or weed tea. And you'll spray that once a week or twice a week at the right time of day. It'll be okay. But it's a lot of work. It's a lot more work than just putting in a wicking bed. So I recommend that you focus your productive growth on your wicking bed because now we have soil. Now with soil, what we want to do with that type of a pond system, we want to do a flow-through wicking bed just like the ones in my systems where water comes into the system continuously, albeit quite slowly. It fills up to a level of rocks, and I like lava rock best for this. It's porous. It's got lots of home for bacteria and stuff in there. And then it flows out at an overflow set point back into the system. So it's a lot like a flow-through, um, a constant flow bed that's a, a media bed. So some systems, like you know, I'll tell you another thing that works really well, is with um, water chestnuts. You do your ebb and flow bed, but you just take the bell siphon off. It's a constant flow bed. The water stays a couple inches under the top, and it just constantly flows. So a wicking bed's a lot like that, except the grow media or the rock is a lot less. There's maybe you know a third of the volume of it in the bed, and the rest is soil sitting up on top of either landscape fabric or perlite. And I really like perlite for this. It's very good at wicking material up. And I've had people say, well, what if the roots go through the perlite into the grow media? It can be an issue. It usually isn't if you're growing annuals because every year there's a shutdown. The roots rot away. The worms and everything down there eats it. It becomes part of the system. It comes from the, the fungal breakdown and everything's good. But, you know, what about the little Taco Bell girl with the tacos and the softer hard tacos? Why can't we have both? So it would be really easy to take and lay down a layer of um, your landscape fabric 
and then lay a couple inches of uh, perlite on top of it and get that really great wicking action of the perlite. Then put in your soil mix, which you want to include organic matter, and I usually use expanded shell or perlite in that mix. It helps make that soil really hydroscopic and pull that moisture up. And then make sure we're mulching on the top. And I haven't got to it this year, but my new mulch of choice is a good quality straw. We put it in a wheelbarrow or a tub. We fill it up with water and a couple ounces of liquid kelp. And we let the, the, the liquid kelp get absorbed by the straw, and we mulch with wet straw. It's easier to keep it wet if we start with it wet, at least the bottom side of it. And every time it rains, then that straw leaches out a little bit, and we're doing a natural fertigation. Now, here's the beauty of the wicking bed system in an aquaponic system. Since we're not 100, and then, you know, we can use solid fertilizers. We can use light amounts of liquid fertilizers, as long as we don't drench it to the point where it goes into the system and overrides the system. Uh, we can use foliar feed, which we can use always, but we can use that solid organic fertilizer. We can add solid, good quality compost, etc., to the soil. We can add bud and blood and bone meal. We can do anything in the soil that we would do with any other soil. What this does is it makes this system infinitely expandable. And as long as our pump has the throw to get the water as far out as we want to go, this system then becomes, therefore, infinitely expandable. We could have one little pump sitting down in this pond, and we could have a 100-foot or 200-foot long rack of grow beds. And we are limited only by our imagination and that which will hold water as to what those grow beds could look like, their configuration, their size. And as long as the pump has the lift, once we get that water up, you know, we can do some interesting things. So, for instance, we could take a system and build it on a rack that's dead level on fairly flat ground, for instance. And that rack could be a couple hundred feet long. And since that rack is level... All the tanks, or maybe one big tank with a pond liner, is dead level. So it doesn't matter where we fill that tank or where that tank overflows. So if a pump has a given amount of lift, let's say 10 feet, that it can do effectively for what we're looking to do, it can lift that 10 feet a lot more effectively straight up than 10 feet plus 200 feet out. The water volume, the cumulative weight of the water starts to drop our head which is how far up we can push the water, right? So if we had that situation set up, we could have a very small pump with, let's say, 10 feet of lift that brought water to the top and into a rack-based system that was dead level. And that dead level system could be plumbed all the way together to the far side where the overflow is, and then that is where the return pipe would bring water back to the system. I think you can see where I'm going with this. We're playing around with swale-like hydrology here. So that one little pump could run a hundred beds, but only pump water five, eight, ten feet up, and only uh, 12, 14, 15 feet out. And then that water would fill completely level through our system, and that water, once that was done, could then be turned back. Obviously, we'd have to have water add water to the system. We would have significantly increased the amount of water in the system. But then we could take and have that water just passively return in a slow trickle because all we need is any amount of water at all going in there and we're going to get an overflow 100, 200, 300, 400 feet away. It doesn't matter how far. Now, I'm not saying that this guy needs to take it to this level. I just want to kind of point out what's possible. 
Because we have a whole debate now about, is aquaponics sustainable? It kind of ties in with the show that I did on Tuesday. And no, it's not, and it's not regenerative. And you can't grow in soil with aquaponics. Well, 90% of my production in aquaponics comes out of soil. And my aquaponics systems make an awful lot of soil. I mean, we have systems that are growing things like water lettuce and water hyacinth and stuff like that. And uh, even edible products like water spinach and all. They produce far more than I, the birds, anybody can eat. And we just, like, every week during the summer, it's mandatory to pull it out of that system and throw it in a pile, and then you get, like, the best soil I've ever seen in my life. But as far as not, not being able to grow in soil, I just describe growing in soil on a massive level. Soil that all could be created over time, by the way. Like, you, this is modular, right? So we could build out four of these, uh, or let's say 12 feet of one of these wicking beds. And we could be growing fast-growing aquatic vegetation in the pond that acts as a solids filter for good biology. We could be harvesting that all summer long. And next year we put in an under 20 feet of bed. And almost all the soil that goes in there could have been created by composting material that came from the system. You want regenerative? You want sustainable? What do you want? So back to the short answer for the guy that asked the question. Yes, you can be very particular about what you think you're going to grow in your ebb and flow beds. Focus on your expansion going on the side of wicking beds um, and be creative and think about all the things that you can do and don't try to do it all in a day. And remember, one of the things especially that's going to make this a little bit challenging for you is you don't have any fish in there right now. So you're going to need a significant number of fish to do anything to the, the nitrogen cycle and nitrate cycle in that system, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100. Those that think I'm underplaying this with how much fish you need and stuff. Right now I have about 50 adult tilapia and several hundred bluegills, some as big as my hand, uh, in a system that's running about 600 gallons of water. And my ebb and flow beds in that system, you can tell with certain plants, are a little bit nutrient deficient. Now part of that is that it's still kind of cold and the tilapia aren't really feeding at the level they should be. But, I mean, that system needs another 40 or 50 bluegill added to it, plus maybe another 40 or 50 little tiny bluegills added to what we call the bait tank in it. So there is a balance that has to be achieved to get that incredible productivity out of the aquaponic system. But there are plants that will, you know, lettuces will do well with far less nutrient than, um, you know, cucumbers or watermelons or something like that. Anyway, I hope that answers your question. I hope it also expands, like, well, what is aquaponics? And maybe I need to do another show on aquaponics. And what, what, because when I, when I hear a lot of criticisms of aquaponics, they're not invalid because I disagree with you. They, they are invalid because what you're saying is not true. When I have people telling me, well, you can't grow on soil with aquaponics, well, that's just like, okay, there's three main grow beds, and one of them is a soil based wicking bed. So, no, that's not true. That's not how that works. That's not how any of this works. Uh, you know, you can't build soil with aquaponics. Well, I just told you how. So maybe we'll reinvestigate re, uh, re that uh, subject next week. I don't know. I'd like, like to hear from you if that's what you want to hear about or not. So um, at this point in the show, I want to remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that I do and you want to help support the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com where you can see our item of the day. You can see all of our past reviews. They're all broken down by you know items and categories, etc. You can get on over to Amazon and check stuff out from there. But as long as you go there first, you help support us in the work that we do. Today's product of the day is Bloody Dock, also known as Blood Veined Sorrel. And this is a sorrel, uh, which is a plant. 
And I've got options for seeds and plants and explanations how you'd make that determination there. But the reason I wanted to bring this back around to you to, to this time of year is this is when a lot of you guys are getting out and planting. Or you're planning your planting if you're like our friend from Ohio here a little bit further up north. And this is a plant I think everybody should grow. And it, it will, and if you have a good, uh, humid climate, uh, it will basically go weedy like in your lawn. And it looks great in your lawn. It tastes great. It's perennial. And other than severe drought, it's hard to kill. And even in some drought-like situations, as long as it eventually gets water again, since it's a perennial that grows up from the root system, it may even die back and then it'll grow back. I had one I thought I killed. I really did. I had it in a, a pot in an aquatic system because it, it grows in bog and marshal arc environments well. It's a very good aquaponics plant. And uh, I took the pot out and set it like on a, one of the shelves that I had built uh, next to one of my ponds, and I forgot. And I went back like four days later, and it was just gone. And like you know when you pick a pot up and you're like, ugh, where it's light? <laughs> you know, there's no weight to it at all. Like, oh, duh, what did I do? And I stuck it in the pond, and I'm like, well, I'll plant something else in it. Like four days later, I went out like, what well, little leaf, little red and green leaf coming up through there? And I'm like, it's alive, you know, it's alive. And it is, and it's a beautiful plant now. Uh, so it's one I really recommend. It's awesome in salads. The best thing to do for your salads, to make your, like just like a cool thing for your salads, the big leaves are fine to eat. No, it doesn't get real fibrous or anything, but they're not quite as sweet. But the little baby leaves, you go cut those off. You know, if you pull them, they'll tear. So you cut them off and put two or three like on the top of a salad and be like, wow, that's neat. And, it, and what I've noticed as of late, a lot of like really gourmet salads at like gourmet restaurants and stuff, they're starting to use the little leaves of the bloody dock in them uh, because it is such a cool accent and it tastes so good. It's, again, my big four. Hard to kill, tastes good, perennial, and looks good. Uh, check it out, Bloody Doc. You can find it at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and start scrolling and you will see mixed in with our episodes and other postings, our most recent reviews. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. This is a song I had never heard. As soon as I heard it, I was like, boy, that sounds like a song from the, the 80s, and it is. And it's a, it's an anti-war song, but it's not... It's a little political because it's an anti-war song, but it's not overtly political in the way that it comes across. Um, it doesn't really take a side other than maybe we shouldn't be killing people. And it doesn't even, it really isn't just anti-war. It's basically, don't be quiet and let the people in charge just have whatever they want. Speak up, do something, be something, make something happen. And you know me, I'm fairly anti-political. But I believe there's a lot of ways we can do that without actually you know, carrying around a picket sign or something like that. That doesn't seem to get a lot done, uh, in my viewpoint anyway. So I am more on what I call proactive apathy. But I think that if you look at what we've accomplished here at the Survival Podcast over almost 10 years now, we'll have our 10-year anniversary in June. I'm really looking forward to that. We need to figure out together something special to do for that. Like, How many of us have had our voices heard in so many unique ways since we started this journey together? How many people have been converted over to actually taking responsibility for their impact on the environment? And, 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 and in exchange for that, are better off financially. It's not, instead of a sacrifice, it became a gain. How many people have said, I'm not going to live in debt for the rest of my life, and got out of the debt-based system where they were enriching bankers at the expense of their family and their family's future? Like There's a lot of ways to let your voice be heard. And... I think we should keep 
you know, shouting from the rooftops. And if politics is your thing, then go do that. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of this community. And it's, it's, it's what I love so much about getting together in groups and talking in groups. Like, we don't all have to agree about the how. And some of us are really good at local politics. Some of us actually have influence at national political levels. And some of us have no interest in that whatsoever, and we're not good at it. Some people are pushers, and some people are pullers. The pushers are the people that are more political. They get in the system and they shove through things. They make things happen. And then there's people that are more, more like me, more anarcho, and we are on the outside. We demonstrate what's possible, and we're like, come on, come with us. And all of those together, we need to let our voice be heard. Great message on a Friday. I hope you enjoy your weekend. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Survival Podcast. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.